Hey, podcast friends, it's your boy, Chris. Today, I have an interview with my friend, also named Chris. Chris has worked in the entertainment industry for the past 10 years, and he's worked at HBO and currently is now at Disney. Because of his role, he's seen the inner workings of Hollywood and the entertainment industry. If you don't know, one of the reasons why I started this podcast was because I don't like the way Asian dudes are portrayed in media. So we talk about what's changing for Asians in media today, what he's doing to change the image of minority groups, things we can do as an audience, the rise of China, and its change of the media landscape, and much more. I think you guys will really enjoy this one. I liked it a lot, and I hope you do too. And just before we start, if you like this podcast, please subscribe and share. If you really enjoy it, don't forget to leave a five-star review. I would love that. And lastly, just letting you know, I have a Facebook group called Badass Asian Dudes. If you want to meet other like-minded, motivated Asian dudes that are succeeding in all different kinds of industries, you should apply to join. Just go on Facebook and search Badass Asian Dudes. Thanks again, and I'm so appreciative of you listening. So thank you so much, and let's get right into it. How's life, dude? What's going on over there? It's been it's been uh pretty rocky. I mean, just on the personal side, professionally, it's been um it's been challenging, but like good challenging. You know what I mean? With especially okay. with the uh, the Fox merger, or um, by that I mean because I've been focusing on all the productions across all five studios that Disney originally owned. Now with Fox, there's four more studios with a lot more content, a lot more films. And it's just, it's just crazy. Cool. What do you think about my new podcast, Badass Asian Dudes? Bro, it's growing faster than I expected. It's crazy, man. What's your feeling? Do you think it's going to be something that... Well, in... How many people do I have in my group now? Let me see. Most people seem very engaged. Over 200 people in the group already. Yo, it's crazy, dude. And it's been really fun. It's been really exciting. I love learning and the support has been awesome. So it's been really good. And you are my third or fourth interview, I think. So I'm still getting used to this thing. And I wanted to talk to you because of your role in media and your history of being in the entertainment industry, what you see right now, what you see going forward. And I thought that your position is really, really unique and also really important for Asian Americans. So that's why I wanted to get you on the podcast. So first, let's start off with a little bit about yourself. Tell us about who you are, what you do, that kind of thing. I am Korean-American in my early 30s, born and raised in Los Angeles, moved around a lot around the LA area, but for the most part, spent my childhood in the South Bay, LA area. And uh, just a typical Korean-American family where um, I'd say I'm a little more Americanized than most Korean families because my mom, she came to the US when she was at a a very, very young age. And... uh, she lived in places like Little Rock, Arkansas, and like Wyoming, and very non-traditional Asian neighborhoods. And so we weren't very Korean. We didn't celebrate many Asian holidays or Korean holidays of very much growing up, but her business was in the Korean culture. So it became 
as the business grew, we became a lot more uh, in tune with our ethnicity, I'd say. Cool. And Chris, since I've known you since we were younger, I want you to talk a little bit about your history in the military. What caused you to join the army when the U.S. went to war with Iraq? And what made you feel like you wanted to join the army? I remember when we were younger and you did that. I did not feel that way because I was getting ready to go to college, but you felt a patriotic duty to join. So I want you to talk about that and why you joined. Well, first and foremost, I, I was a military history nerd growing up, and I saw so much fascination in military s- stories and history. So I, I, you know, I was all about it. But on the other hand, I didn't know if, you know, our generation was going to have a big conflict or not. But, you know, I remember like in history class, I would hear these stories of guys who, you know, wanted to serve their country and for whatever reason they couldn't and it'd be like the worst thing in their lives, right? That's just one part. Another part is that, you know, I did face a lot of racial discrimination growing up. And, you know, as Asian Americans, no matter how long we've been in this country, people still see us as immigrants and they don't think of us being acclimated into American society or American culture. And so largely, I got to say with a full honesty, and uh, I got to be blunt that a lot of racial discrimination that I felt in my life was not really from the white community. It was more from other, other um, minority groups. And I did feel like I was like, Hey, if I come back, if I join, if I serve, and I come back and someone tested my patriotism to this country as an American, I can have kind of that argument saying, what did you do for this country? You know, I shed blood, sweat and tears for it. So I've earned it. And I had that young, naive attitude. Damn, that's pretty crazy. How old were you when you enlisted? 17. Oh, shit. That's pretty nuts. How is it over there? What kind of experiences do you have? What do you think of your experience over there? Um, now looking at it as a adult with, um, so many responsibilities, I think the military really put me on the right track because I don't know what kind of person I would be in college. If I went after high school, I wasn't very disciplined. My parents were very absent because they're working all the time. So I didn't really have key figures keeping me in check constantly. And I'd say I was pretty spoiled because of the fact that my parents felt guilty they were never around. So they would just provide whatever temporary happiness that they thought their kids would want. And the military was a great place to learn that, you know, you have to earn everything, appreciate everything. You have to respect hierarchy. You have to respect the system and nothing is going to be given to you for free. And so those kind of perspectives really, I think, me understand that but there's a lot of positive things about the experience and there's negative things too but i think every experience if you make it positive and if you learn something from it it's beneficial to everybody yeah for sure i think there's positive and negative so all things and then after your military i think that was kind of your gateway into entertainment too i remember your the first entertainment company you worked at was like a military production company or something like that yeah it was um actually military consulting and so that how that started was i you know 
did my four years in the army and then I got out and I was going to school. I was utilizing the GI bill. Why, why not? Right. It's a uh, free money for tuition. And so I was going to school and I did struggle quite a bit with PTSD, um, readjusting to society. And my mother, she had a family friend whose son was also a, I was an officer, but he was a former officer in the army. And he started this, um, entertainment consulting company. And my mom asked him to kind of be a bigger brother figure and like keep me out of trouble and um, just make sure I was okay. So he took me on as an intern to begin with. And that company basically worked with Hollywood productions or commercials or video games to bring authenticity to military themed projects. So it can be anywhere from editing scripts to make sure the dialogue is proper to actor training to make sure an actor is carrying a weapon correctly and helping the hair and makeup to make sure it's proper and things like that. So it was a very interesting step into entertainment, but yeah, that's what it was. How was your experience there? Were there a lot of things that you learned? There was a lot of things I learned. I, um, learning how hard it is to make a film how hectic a production can be and yeah just the different aspects of filmmaking it, it it was very fascinating to me and i guess that's where i transitioned to bigger and better things so after your experience at that company did you feel like this was the route that you wanted to go you wanted to go into entertainment and build your career there what was your next step after that not really you know i never really ever considered entertainment, especially being former military. Like I still have military friends who call me a Hollywood sellout and in a joking manner, right? It just, I just wanted, I was just frustrated with the inaccuracies of different cultures that films portrayed. And it was, I didn't know it, it can amount to a career, but I got the opportunity to be a production intern at HBO because um, my boss at the consulting company, he was friends with a, post-producer at um, HBO. And he gave me that shot and he basically said, hey, if you want to make it in entertainment, you have to start from the bottom. So that's what I did. I became a production intern. I was grabbing coffee for everybody. I was, it was in the boom of the digital age. So I was locked in a, a closet scanning old scripts and putting it electronic for hours until I had like paper cuts all over my hands. It was it was pretty intense, but it was, you know, something I was willing to do to earn a shot. And yeah, I, I did bounce around. I didn't know if this was going to be what I wanted. I didn't like going into production. So I thankfully and fortunately, I got hired by a executive who is the, who is, who is the head of diversity and inclusion at HBO. But she's more on the talent development side, talent development front, where they're trying to uplift more diverse filmmakers and giving them opportunities to show executives what they can produce. And um, I didn't know if that was for me either. And um, I majored in communication. So I wanted to see what I can do with that. That's where, you know, you know, I moved to New York city to pursue kind of the media communication side of things. And HBO was gracious enough to give me a job in their New York office where I spent all three years of my time in New York there. And then this is where I finally transitioned and got a job with Disney Studios where I'm in the content creation side, which I really like. I really enjoy. 
How was your experience at HBO overall? What'd you think? Uh, HBO is a leader for a reason in what they do in exclusive content. You know, HBO's business model is um, they're going to tell stories that no one else wants to tell. They've shifted a little bit from that. And they had a kind of a come to Jesus moment when we heard that they pitched shows like Breaking Bad and Walking Dead and these Mad Men and shows like that. It was pitched to HBO to begin with, but they turned it down. And that became kind of the come to Jesus moment. Because imagine Breaking Bad in the HBO platform with the unfiltered nature of HBO productions, right? Instead of being on cable TV, like how much more intense that show would have been and the production value that HBO brings. You know, I've learned from the best. Honestly, I wouldn't be as capable of doing my job today if it wasn't for the foundations that HBO, the company, the people who made that company have taught me. And so my experience is nothing but positive and I owe whatever success that I have in the future to a lot of my mentors over there. That's pretty awesome. So I think you said that uh, after you were intern, your role was bringing multicultural talent into HBO or something like that. Mm -hmm. What what kind of initiatives did that department do to get more multicultural talent into the entertainment industry? Yeah, of course. Uh, It's still spearheaded by a woman named Kelly Edwards, who um, is the head of diversity inclusion, or more specifically, her title is um, Senior Vice President of Talent talent development and programming. So the biggest initiative, I was with her for the inaugural year of an um, incubator program called HBO Access, which is still running today, which is a, a director slash writer development program for diverse directors and diverse writers. And so it's a program only for people of diverse backgrounds. So to give them that opportunity because especially in Hollywood, straight white men have been dominating in all aspects of Hollywood. And there wasn't enough opportunities for diverse filmmakers to prove what they can do and what gripping stories that they could tell. And so HBO Access was kind of our, our, our baby and it's still running and it's still, you know, you can go on HBO Go or HBO Now and look at the content that was created through HBO Access. It's literally called like HBO Access, whatever the title of the short is. So the culmination is these directors slash writers would get the funding and the educational help to create a short for HBO and that that short will live on their platform. That's pretty cool. I haven't seen any, but uh, I'll definitely have to check some out. Yeah, please do. Okay. And so after HBO, you transitioned to Disney. Mm -hmm. And I got you on this podcast because I think your position at Disney is very interesting. Mm -hmm. So what do you do at Disney? Yeah. So my official title is um, manager of uh, multicultural audience engagement. And what that means is we are kind of uh, first of its kind in industry. There's been tons of other teams that handled a lot of diversity inclusion work, but the diversity inclusion work was largely in-house, like internal facing or employee engagement, like employee resource groups, business resource groups, things of that nature, and like sponsorships towards diverse organizations, diverse festivals, things like that. But our main goal was to provide sort of multicultural, creative, in-house consulting for our productions. 
So our role was to work with the filmmakers, our creative executives, our production executives, our marketing executives, publicity, consumer products, parks and resorts, everything that's going to touch a certain brand of, of, and largely, you know, a lot of our brands come from a film, right? So we work with these executives to not only educate them on the culture that they're representing, but make sure that they are representing that culture and those characters accurately in, in a way that the people who are being represented want to be represented. We do a ton of research. There's topics like the single story narrative. Are you familiar with the single story narrative? No. So the single story narrative in a nutshell, this woman, this African woman who moved to the United States to um, pursue her education, she came up with this, this theory because her name is escaping me, but she has a TED talk and I'm happy to share that with you. Um, we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, definitely. But she came up with this, she coined this title called Single Story Narrative because she took a look at um, diverse representation in Hollywood from diverse characters, right? And every ethnicity who that is diverse was given a single story. For instance, Asian people were always kung fu martial arts related nothing else or we were immigrants and we couldn't speak english properly we had very asian names and it just didn't make sense for us to be acclimated into american culture and same thing for african americans or black people where they were always in the form of servitude or they were entertainers or rappers or athletes but they're you and I both know that there's so many interesting stories that come out of every culture, but why are they only represented in that single story? So we're trying to shift that and we're trying to give opportunities and um, arguably, you know, black Panther, that was the reason for its success. It showed black people in a new light. It showed them very technologically, technologically advanced. And they were kind of making fun of the stereotype where even Wakanda was, masking itself as a savage nation as an indigenous nation but beyond the beyond the curtain they were the most technologically advanced nation in the entire world so that was kind of their poke at the stereotype we need a black panther for asian people oh it's coming it's coming it's coming we're working on it but the difference here is it has to be original content we can't have like mulan and a very old story, an old legend represent Asian people today. And we have to be very specific in the stories that we're telling because we can't just say, oh, Mulan represents all Asians. No, Mulan represents Chinese people at a certain time from a certain place. So even in our marketing for Mulan, we're not calling it an Asian film. We're calling it a Chinese film because it's so specific. But if we have original content like a superhero, like Black Panther, there's so much room to play with. There's so many avenues that we can go on the storytelling piece and the accurate story, storytelling piece. And it's been announced that uh, Marvel Studios has picked up a superhero called named Shang-Chi, who is pretty much the Bruce Lee of it all. He's very, very tightly based on Bruce Lee and his martial arts and stuff. But the conversations now that we're having is that, you know, the stereotypes around martial arts. So we have to 
we have to approach that conversation very delicately and talk to the appropriate people and get the right consultation on how we could represent not only Asian people, but Asian American people and show the cultural differences and the cultural nuances of how and why we're so different. Damn, that's pretty good. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. So when you are doing your work, who are you dealing with mostly? Like, are they producers? Are they directors? Are they actors? Who are you working with? Uh, mostly the studio executives on our side, the creative executives, the production executives. Um, from time to time, for instance, with like Marvel, um, Marvel does not go to third-party production companies. They produce everything in-house. Um, whereas, and same thing for like our animation studios, like Pixar and Walt Disney Animation. Everybody in those in those halls, they are creating that film. But for instance, like other companies like HBO or even within our own studios like Disney Live Action, they go to third-party production companies to create their films for them. And so when it comes to third-party productions, typically for like Aladdin, we worked with our cre- uh, production executives that represent the studio. From time to time, we'll converse with for instance, Dan Lin, who is the co-founder of Rideback Productions, who was a production company for that created Aladdin. And um, we'll work with them. Typically, we would work with the studio executives that's representing that film. And he would talk to the director and the writers, and um, he or she, I'm sorry. And um, that person would speak with the filmmakers to see what vision that they have for the film, relay that to us. And we'll try to explain that vision to our other segments like marketing and publicity and consumer products to make sure that they are creating their product in the same vision as the filmmakers. Do the studio executives seem pretty open to all the things that you have to say? Oh, yeah. It's been surprisingly very easy. And some of the narratives that I've been discussing with a lot of our production executives is that you know, I have a relationship with them. I know their hearts and minds are always in a good place. Thankfully, diverse content is no longer just a moral objective. It's also now a business objective. And often people forget that Hollywood is a big business. There's investors that invest $100 million into a production. And if they're not going to get a return on investment, why would they create that film? So that that's where it became becomes very tough because for instance crazy rich asians if that wasn't successful it would have been very very tough to have another conversation about an all asian american cast so a lot of the marketing behind crazy rich asians was very smart um there's an organization called gold house and a, a a good colleague and friend of mine who runs that organization his name is bing chen very He's a go-getter. He's, uh, he's a great guy and he just gets it. He knows how to target our audience. He knows how to target our community. And what he basically said about Crazy Rich Asians was, hey, if the Asian community is not willing to spend $15 to go watch this film, then you're not helping yourselves. So don't get mad that another all-Asian cast doesn't get greenlit for another 20 years and you only have yourselves to blame. If you look at Black Panther, 
the black community came out in force. They were wearing their cultural outfits. They were hyping it up. And there was so much hype that other communities got involved too. And they were like, oh, I need to go watch this. And I do feel like the Asian community really doesn't support ourselves enough. And we don't speak out enough. And a great example, I see you wearing a Dodger cap. I have uh, the Dodger game in, in the background. And, you know, we're big Dodger fans growing up in L.A. And a great example that I use quite often is that you know, how Asian Americans are very swept under the rug. You know, a few years ago, the manager of the Dodgers, they, hi- they hired a new manager. And his name is Dave Roberts. He's still currently the manager. And the media went wild saying he's the first African-American manager of the L.A. Dodgers. Yada, yada, yada. There were stories about that everywhere. Little did they know his mother is Asian. His mother's Japanese. There was not one mention in the media about Dave Roberts being the first Asian-American manager of the Dodgers or even in baseball. That's also true about Tiger Woods. Exactly. Exactly. Same thing with Tiger. And my argument is, let's say we flip the script here, right? Let's say the media was only talking about his Asian identity. What is the black leaders of America going to do? They're going to stand up, say, hey, we need to talk about his black identity as well. And this is not right. And I guarantee you they would do that. But our Asian American leaders, they're silent. What are they? What's what's going on? Like, why are we not for ourselves? I agree. I think that one of the reasons is that because under the Asian umbrella, there's so many different ethnicities. So Mm -hmm. there's Japanese, there's Korean, there's Chinese, there's Vietnamese, and so on and so on. And I feel like under the whole Asian umbrella, we all need to come together. So when you see someone that is Japanese doing really well, all Asians should support that person rather than just Japanese people. Agreed. But I mean, the argument here is Africa is a continent. There's so many countries in Africa and the black identity comes together as well. And same thing with uh, the Latinx community. You know, there's so many different identities and cultures within within Latin America. But, you know, when it comes to specific storytelling, yeah, then that's when we can be specific. But we also have to support each other just because Mulan is a Chinese film about a Chinese story and a Chinese woman doesn't mean Korean, Japanese, Vietnamese, all other Asian cultures can be like, hell yeah, let's let's support our Chinese brothers and sisters and make this movie famous. You know, it really needs a collective effort. And I think we need to help each other instead of thinking about the historical political context of what happened with Japan and Korea, Japan and China, China and Korea. That's the past is the past. We're talking about the Asian American identity now. Exactly. I agree 100%. The Asian American identity. So just all ethnicities that are Asian in general, they all need to come together. I 100% yeah. agree. Let's not forget about our Pacific Islander brothers and sisters. Too. Yes, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And so Crazy Rich Asians, what came out of that? I think uh, hope. Hope that the general audience can take away messages from a story that's just set in a different ethnic culture. Was it seen as a general success in Hollywood? Oh yeah, most definitely. Definitely. We are constantly using Crazy Rich Asians as 
a example of how successful a diverse, I, I wouldn't, you know, I'm hesitant to use the term diverse because technically if a cast is all Asian, it's not diverse. Diversity means a mixture of people. But in the, if you look at it in the bubble of all Hollywood films, then yeah, it is a diverse film because it's a different representation of different people when you're in competition with all the other films, right? But the casting in Crazy Rich Asians is not diverse. It's very Asian, but it's very diverse within the Asian community. That's for sure. But there's also like challenges that we face where even authenticity within the Asian community. Is it right that, you know, Ken Jong was playing a Singaporean Chinese character? I don't like Ken Jong. <laughs> Why not? I don't like Ken Jong. <laughs> Uh, the characters that he plays you know it's i feel like it's very embarrassing for asian dudes yeah but you know we can have a different types of personalities right we can have that different types of personalities i 100 agree we need more different types of personalities yeah. and i think that it's changing for yeah. sure but we need more of the stronger yeah. male characters in media i feel like you are bored of the character that Ken Jong brings because it's been done before around Asian characters, the goofy, silly guy who's not very a type, you know, alpha exactly. male personality. Exactly. Right. And that's actually one of the main reasons why I started this podcast mm -hmm. because I feel like as we were growing up, that was kind of mostly the characters that we saw in Western media. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like that kind of character gives kind of a bad stereotype towards Asian men. But on the other hand, Crazy Rich Asians had him as a character, but it had diversity of personalities because there was a lot of tough dudes too. Um, yeah, which I, I like that. Right. We need more of that. Right. So we do need, I do think we need the, the diversity because there's so many different Asian guys. I, I mean, I personally know, and you probably do too, Asian men who are very goofy and silly and nerdy, but then there's plenty of alpha males too. Yes. Uh, but so then I think the issue is that when you look at movies or you look at TV shows, you don't just get nerdy guys for white people or for black actors, you know, but for Asian characters, it's mostly always for Asian male characters. It's mostly always that kind of goofy guy. We're going back to the single single story narrative, aren't we? Yeah. So yeah. That's exactly your point, right? We need to expand the story. Expand. We need to change that. Yeah, for sure. And I feel like that your role at Disney, I feel like that's like a really key part in doing that. Yeah. So a lot of our strategy, even with this live action Mulan that's going to come out next year, is that we want to position the male lead in the film to be the strong alpha male soldier type of Asian guy. And I envision him being shirtless on the cover of GQ and being the next eligible bachelor. Well, that's and, what we need. Exactly. And I mean, there are people who are paving that way little by little, like Daniel day Kim and Rick Yoon. And there's a lot of strong, capable actors but we just need more opportunities for them to do it. Yeah, definitely. We need more opportunities, more roles, more of those kind of characters rather than the goofy guy. Yeah.
Yeah, 100% agree. And I think it's tough, but if even our own community doesn't support that, it's only going to get even tougher. It's kind of like, I'm sure you've mentored people in your life. And if you mentor somebody and they're not willing to help themselves, it's kind of a lost cause, right? So we need to be able to help ourselves. And that's why I think myself and majority of the people who's part of this movement that you've created, I think that's, we've, we're sharing the same sentiment that you have. And that's why we're all a part of it. So kudos to you. Who do you see playing that character? Which character? The uh, the one that you were talking about, like the ripped one that would be on like GQ. Like what actor comes to mind? Oh, well, they've, they've already casted everybody from Milan. I can't really talk about it. Okay. I think it's changing for sure with like who you said, Daniel Day Kim, Steven Yoon, who are some other prominent Asian male actors. Rick, Rick Yoon, I'd say. Man, it's tough. I it's yeah. hard. It's it's really hard. Ki Hong Lee, I'd say. Oh uh, yeah, Ki Hong Lee. He's pretty badass. I should get him on the podcast. Most of the badass Asian guys are all like martial artists too. It's like when can we have a romantic male lead that's an Asian American? Who, I agree. I one hundred percent agree. Yeah, who's just the who's the most attractive woman out there? You know. Not based on his looks, but based on his charm, yeah. based on his personality. And he just and happens to be Asian. I think I 100% agree with you. And also, I think that YouTube is changing a lot of media. You know, now you can reach a much wider audience. Yeah. Are you familiar with kind of like these YouTube content creators like Wong Fu? I'm Jason not. Films. I've heard of them, but I, I don't really engage that much in digital content which I, I i probably should yeah no i i am familiar with them I, I think the issue here is we 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 actually had this panel discussion where one of the panelists was a, a gentleman named um melvin marr who's a chinese american guy from the bay uh, a producer for us on our uh, tv content he's a producer of fresh off the boat and he made it clear you know it's tough for our generation especially because the generation before us, the parents who raised us, they didn't think entertainment or sports was an option for us because the opportunities were so limited. So Melvin was saying when he was trying to cast the main role for Fresh Off the Boat, you know, he'll do a casting call for, let's say, uh, a young Asian boy from the ages of 11 to 14, right? How many Asian boys are going to acting school? They're all in SAT classes, or doing piano, or doing some sort of like curricular activity that is in engineering or law or medicine or the stereotypes, right? So the, the casting choices are so limited and we're not helping ourselves. But I think the next generation will be a lot more different. Do you see more Asian actors going into acting? Do you see more people? I do. I do. I really do. Um, I think it's more than before, but I don't think it's enough. I don't think there's still, I feel like a lot of Asian actors are still trying to put martial arts in their resume or foreign speaking or being able to be bilingual or trilingual or what have you. I think they're still targeting that single story that Hollywood is used to. 
why can't they just be a good actor? Why do they need all this extracurricular stuff? Why can't the next Disney musical be given to uh, an Asian actor, not because he's Asian, but because he's a good singer and a good actor? I think it's a cycle. And I think that now that we have more prominent actors, for example, Randall Park, he came out with that new movie on Netflix. You know, the younger generation sees that if they do want to go into acting, then they can carve out their role. And so maybe more in the next generation, there'll be a lot more. I agree. And speaking of which, I'd say arguably because of that movie, I mean, I mean, not because of that movie, but arguably the most badass actor we know today is Asian, Keanu Reeves. I didn't know that. He's, is he Asian? He is Asian. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I, I need to remember which Asian, but he is half Asian. And then, yeah, so I think the younger generation, they see people that are doing things in the entertainment industry and then that gives them hope that they can do it. And so they pursue it like even rapping, like yeah. dumbfounded. Are you familiar with dumbfounded? Yeah. I hear, I listen to his stuff. I do think our generation will take not just entertainment or music, but even sports more seriously for their children as a viable career option. And so, you know, we do have a lack of professional athletes who are Asian. It's mostly like, non-contact sports like golf right but i do think our generation will um be pushing our kids to it's already starting like with chloe kim and Haley langland and all these other asian young athletes coming out of the woodwork like it's already beginning but i think it's just going to be elevated more because our generation who was born and raised in this culture we're going to push our kids to take basketball or baseball a lot more seriously than our last generation did yeah i think the last generation our parents they forced us to study like what you said they forced us to study they forced us to do piano do instruments that kind of thing no i think that our generation we will have our kids do what they want to do we'll have them we'll let them be more free to do the things that they want to do yeah, and that's the very American way of thinking, right? Yeah, definitely. And yeah. I think I see that, especially now that I live in Korea. So all the kids, all they are forced to do every single day, all day long is study. Yeah. And now I realize that, you know, the American way is do what you want. Do things that you enjoy. Yeah, and it's not coincidental that there's a serious um, depression and suicide problem in Korea amongst the youth. I think because of social media, you know, we're so globally connected now that the youth from different countries are seeing what the youth from places like America is up to and what we're doing. And they look at our Instagram or Facebook and we're always preaching, follow your dreams, follow your passion, fuck the haters, fuck everyone who don't support you. Just keep following your, your passions, right? And so I think there's a... I think there's a cultural shift going on at the moment, not just in Korea, but places like Japan too. Like young kids are getting tattoos now, which is so against Asian cultures. It's supposed to be for like gangsters, right? Kids are getting more into hip hop music and tagging and the more street grungy stuff that 
maybe they were always passionate about, but their culture said no. So I think there's a, a bit of a youth movement going on in more homogenous societies like Korea, Japan, and China. For sure. I definitely agree. And also, are you seeing more Asians in the corporate positions in Hollywood? The issue is the lower and mid-tier, it's very diverse. Very diverse. The upper tier in the senior executive level is still, I'd say, 95% white. But, you know, it can't change in a day, right? It's a, it has to be a changing of the guard. And I'm not going to take away from these executives who worked extremely hard and earned their right to be at the top. And they're not just going to move aside because a lack of diversity. They earned it. And at that time, possibly the peers that they were growing up with within the, in the profession, in the industry, they're probably all white. So the people who made it, it was them. And I think it's very unfair to say, hey, we want more diversity. So X amount of white executives need to step down so that there's opportunities. No, we still have to work hard. The best person for the job is going to get the job. The difference that we're making now is if there was one position open beforehand, let's say there was one position open and there was 10 candidates for that role, right? In the past, there was nine out of 10 candidates were straight white men. That's not fair. We're not saying let's change the quota. We're not saying, hey, let's eliminate white men and replace them. We're saying let's change the opportunities given to people. So if there's 10 candidates, it should be 50-50 men and women. Let's mimic what our society is and give that opportunity. It should be the best person for that role should get it despite their background. How about the rise of China? Do you see- I love it. Do you see any changes in the Hollywood industry because of China's power growing these days? Yeah. Like I said, it's a business. Entertainment is a business. And you're going to slowly find out that a lot of diverse stories is going to be based around Chinese culture and Chinese stories. And there's so much research that they're saying that the top entertainment consumer in the entire world is going to be the Chinese by 2020. And so it's becoming a very strategically business objective to target that audience. If you go back to the 90s, 75%, roughly around there, like don't quote me on the exact numbers, but around 75% of our box office revenue came from domestic audiences. It's completely flipped now. I'd say about 80% of our box office revenue comes from international audiences, largely China. And so we're business. We have to go where the money is and where the consumer is. And right now, the boom in the economy of China and China's growing in theaters and um, entertainment and whatnot, we have to target that. We have to give them content that they're going to be excited about. But Coco was a great example of reasonings why Chinese audiences doesn't necessarily need Chinese-relevant content. Because I don't know if you guys know this, but... There were 13 f- Pixar films released in China, the 13th one being Coco. Coco, an uh, exclusively Mexican film, did better in China than the previous 12 combined. combined. And the reasoning, in my opinion, for that is the marketing team led the way, the studio marketing team, 
where they marketed that story as not a Mexican film, but as a family film. They talked about traditions, bringing honor to your family, honoring your ancestors, a lot of these cultural traits that the Chinese are very adamant about. And so the Chinese, I think, were fascinated that another culture halfway across the world shares similar cultural traits as they do. And it was just fascinating to them. And, you know, I think that's where I think our society needs to go. Let's stop focusing on our differences, focus on the similarities that we have as human beings. And that becomes marketable to everybody. So you're seeing also a lot of Chinese stories being pitched as well? Oh, yeah, most definitely. There's going to be a lot of Chinese-themed content coming out, including Crazy Rich Asians. Crazy Rich Asians was not a Southeast Asian story. It was set in Southeast Asia, but it was pretty much a Chinese story. It was a Chinese immigrant story or Chinese colonization story. They were colonists of Singapore. So a lot of the negative criticism that Crazy Rich Asians received from the people in region was like, they were saying that it's, it's not a story about Singapore, not a story about the Singaporean people or the local people, X, Y, and Z. It was a story about the Chinese influence in Singapore. Yeah. And I think that's the rise of China is a good thing as well. I think it'll result in more Asian characters, more Asian stories. And overall, for the Asian American, mm-hmm. that's really important. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. Cool. So yeah. do you have any parting thoughts? Anything else to say? Um, you know, there's that really um, popular quote that Gandhi said where, you know, he said, be the change that you want to see, right? I, I probably butchered it, but it was something like that. That's right. I think that's right. right. I think that's right. <laughs> yeah. So I think within our own community, we have a lot of pride and we're not, we're not quick to help each other out. We're not quick to be vocal and we're not quick to um, stand up for what we want and we're not doing anything about it. And then when it doesn't happen, we complain and moan and say, why aren't we getting representation? But then when we do get representation, how many people are actually going out to support that? Right? So I'd say let's all hold hands and, you know, support each other and, you know, work together to be the change that we want to see. I think that's true. I think that's really true. And actually be the change that you want to see really resonates with me. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of why I started this podcast. Mm -hmm. That's why I started that group, Badass Asian Dudes. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very scary to put out content Mm-hmm. You know, put your face out there, advertise your podcast, talk about these issues. These issues are tough. Yeah, very tough. And these issues are really, really tough. But I felt like I'm in a good position to kind of pursue a project like this. And yeah. so, yeah, I think be the change that you want to see is so true. And then exactly what you said, when there is representation, everyone has to go out and support it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, not only our own stories, but we need to support our other minority communities. You know, the black community, Hispanic community also came out in force to support Crazy Rich Asians. And I think we need to also do that for our uh, brothers and sisters who have similar issues. Similar issues. Yeah, I agree. 
I 100% agree. There you have it, guys. My interview with Chris. What'd you guys think? How'd you guys like it? If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. Please share. If you really enjoyed it, please leave a five-star review. That would mean so much to me. And also remember that I have a Facebook group. Just go on Facebook and search Badass Asian Dudes. Meet other like-minded people, people who are hustling on their path, motivated, want to do something with their lives. If that sounds interesting to you, please uh, apply to join and we would love to have you. So thanks again and see you guys next week. Mm -hmm.